This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, is it Colin Kaepernick versus Jay-Z or rich capitalists versus a Black movement against racist police killings? And white supremacist gunmen have slaughtered hundreds of people in the U.S. in recent decades, prompting some to demand extra powers for the FBI. But does the Bureau really want to catch the racist bad guys? We'll explore that issue. But first... Three months ago, four U.S. activists were arrested for occupying the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C., with the express permission of the Venezuelan government, after the Trump administration recognized the pro-coup politician Juan Guaido as the nation's leader. The four Americans face up to a year in jail and heavy fines if convicted. One of them is Kevin Zees, a co-founder of Popular Resistance. We asked Zees how the case is going. The case is going slowly. The federal prosecution against us is going slowly. It's quite evident from the actions of the prosecutor that the government wants to put the final four embassy protectors, the Venezuelan embassy protectors, in jail and fine us heavily. It's a serious prosecution. Their first plea bargain was plead guilty and let the judge sentence you. And we may add fines for the cost of the police and the damage you did to the embassy. Of course, we didn't do any damage to the embassy, but they'll claim we did. And so they're playing hardball. And so we're in a process of looking at what happened at the embassy, reviewing it in great detail and figuring out what discovery questions we have for the government. And there are a lot of interesting discovery questions. We expect this will go on for months, which means big legal bills, of course, (laughs) lots of time. But we'll probably go to trial in the spring. And we're really pleased that Embassy Protectors Defense Committee has formed, defendembassyprotectors.org. And they're going to be using this case to organize people against the Venezuelan coup and in favor of international law, as well as to help raise money for our defense. So we're really glad it's not just the four of us against the United States, but the movement has kind of coalesced around us to help us defend ourselves. Yes, in terms of your defense, certainly in discovery, you'll be trying to find ways to show that you didn't cause any damage to the embassy, but that in fact the pro-coup people did cause damage with graffiti and forms of vandalism. But also you'll be making arguments that you had a right to be there, and those rights were rooted in the rights of Venezuela the state whose rights have been violated by the U.S. That's exactly right. We were in the embassy with the permission of the elected government of Venezuela, the government that is recognized under Venezuelan law, and the government that's recognized by the United Nations. They are the real government. And under international law, the United States was not allowed to enter that embassy. Under the Vienna Convention, embassies are inviolate. That means they cannot be violated. When we were arrested, the United States had more than 100 police for the four of us. 
five different police agencies. They came with military gear and military force. They battered down the door, which they didn't have to do, which is absurd. They battered down the door and in the room that we were waiting for them. We, when they came in, finally we said, we're in the second floor conference room. Come, we'll meet you up here. We were sitting there waiting for them, 17 police in that conference room, to arrest the four of us who were not resisting. So it was a real show of force, but it was a violation of international law. And we didn't break in. We had a key. We didn't trespass. We were there with permission. The U.S. government violated international law. They used a battering ram to break the door down uh, to come into the embassy illegally. And that's the real terror of this. I mean, it puts embassies around the world at risk because now the Vienna Convention is not very secure. So a U.S. embassy around the world, those embassy personnel could be put at risk because of this action by the Trump administration against Venezuela. And the key issue you mentioned, the key issue is Venezuela was in control of that embassy. In fact, it's not even leased. It's owned by the government of Venezuela, this property in Georgetown. That was their property. And the key issue is, who had control? Was it this coup, this failed coup leader, Juan Guaido? And was he able to give permission to the government for us to enter, for them to enter and take us? No. And it's so interesting that in the last week, we've seen these negotiations that are going on, or conversations, probably more accurately, between the United States and the Venezuelan government. And it's obvious from the news reporting that the reality is the Trump administration realizes Maduro is in power. Maduro is the president. Juan Guaido is not. And so once they recognize Maduro is the president, they had no permission to enter that embassy. They got permission from their lapdog, Juan Guaido, a fake, a failed coup effort leader, and he didn't have the power to give that permission. And the government is proving that by their actions, negotiating with the Maduro government. The United States didn't just effectively seize the Venezuelan embassy. It seized billions in assets of the U.S.-based Venezuelan-owned oil company. The Brits seized billions of dollars in gold. There's been wholesale seizures of Venezuelan assets all over the world. Yes, that's so true. I mean, you're talking about $11 billion a year that Venezuela is losing in theft by the U.S. and Western governments, uh, especially the U.S. And that is why there's an economic crisis in Venezuela, while it, why it is going through uh, depression-level shrinkage, because their main source of revenue is being seized, and now it's being made worse by this blockade where the U.S. is trying to stop Venezuelan oil from leaving the country and food and other uh, and drugs and other in- important uh, materials coming into the country. So now Trump is talking about escalating to lining the shores with Navy boats to create a real military blockade of Venezuela. At the same time that Venezuela and Russia have reached agreement to allow Russian Navy ships to port in Venezuela. So you have the potential of Russian Navy, U.S. Navy, in conflict off the coast of Venezuela. That is what this is leading to, a geopolitical crisis between Russia and China supporting Venezuela, U.S. and Colombia and Brazil attacking Venezuela, and the Venezuelan people, a civilian militia of more than 2 million people trained and armed on top of their 
military of 200,000 and their National Guard and their police, if the U.S. were to go into Venezuela, it would be a terrible defeat for the United States, terrible destruction of Venezuela, lots and lots of blood on the streets. In the end, the U.S. would lose. Venezuela would be crippled, but it would come back. The U.S. cannot defeat Venezuela. Venezuela is prepared. The Russians have provided air defense missiles so that an aerial attack won't be effective in Venezuela. This is not a desert. This is mountains and forests and lakes. This is not like bombing Libya. And the Venezuelans are prepared because the U.S. has been very open about their intent to use military force. And so Venezuelans want peace, but they are prepared to defend their sovereignty. And although in the United States there's so much talk about rolling back the pink tide in Latin America, any invasion of Venezuela would surely set off conflagrations elsewhere on the continent. And in fact, the pink tide is rising again. We see it in multiple parts of uh, Latin America. We just saw it in Argentina most recently with the uh, terrible showing by Macri in the, the first round of the elections. He's likely to be knocked out. We see it in Honduras with the ongoing revolt against the coup government put in place by Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State and President Obama when he was president. Now that's a major revolt. You see it in Brazil with the exposure of the false Operation Car Wash with the judge who was part of the prosecution going after Lula to prevent an election. And you see it in Mexico with AMLO being elected. I mean, so there's a real pink tide rising. And if they were to go into Venezuela with the assistance of Colombia and Brazil, the United States, it would set off in Brazil that Bolsonaro opposition, which is already very strong, he'll be a weak president that probably wouldn't survive. And in Colombia, you saw a very strong second place from the left-wing candidate who's still pursuing winning the presidency. And if Colombia goes in with the U.S. imperialists to attack Venezuela, that government's in problems. So I think that you're right. The pink tide, which has been effectively beat back first by President Obama, probably the most effective empire president the U.S. has had in many years, has beat back the pink tide, but it's rising again. And Trump, who's probably one of the worst empire presidents the U.S. has had, is losing international support, and you're seeing the left grow in Venezuela. The undertow of the uh, left-wing movements in Venezuela is getting stronger. They're going to overtake, in the 2020s, they're going to overtake these very weak right-wing governments that were helped to put in place by the United States. But the U.S. corporate media continues to say that Venezuela's economic problems are the result of failed socialism. And the, the corporate media didn't pay any attention, much attention at all, and certainly no positive attention to you guys when you were at the Venezuelan embassy in Washington. That was an amazing blackout because that conflict at the Venezuelan embassy you know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out when we first went in. The first couple of weeks were no problem. We could go in and out. But then the Secret Service worked with this right-wing mob of people from Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua who had fled their countries because they didn't like the left direction that the countries took. So you had these pro-coup mob working with the Secret Service, attacking the embassy, assaulting people, breaking into the embassy, breaking windows breaking doors, coming in, and the Secret Service was helping them rather than arresting them. And the media didn't cover this at all. It was an incredible blackout. Thankfully, there was social media. We had some great embedded journalists 
from Mint Press News and the Gray Zone, and Telesur covered it every day. And so there was information getting out, and many people in the movement followed on a day-by-day basis. I was kind of shocked when we got out to hear from people how they were reviewing what we were doing every day. Some people saying they were checking for tweets on it every hour. They wanted to know what was going on. And so in this case, social media overcame that blackout, and a lot of people learned about what was going on. Now, after we were arrested, then they covered us. Four people arrested. Oh, just four people arrested. Big deal. (laughs) But there was 37 days of incredible conflict that would have been a made-for-TV story. And even before that conflict, for example, on the night before we expected the U.S. to come into the embassy because the OAS ambassadors from Venezuela were leaving the next day. So the night before that, we had an amazing forum with John Kiriakou, a former CIA official who talked about regime change, a perspective from inside the CIA. We had more than 100 people in the audience. It was live streamed. He talked about something that no one knows about, even in Congress. There's a regime change office in the CIA. And when an agent wants to conduct a coup against a government, he brings a proposal to that office. That office then sends it to the Justice Department and the National Security staff. They come back and say yes or no and budget it. So that exists. So the night before we expected the U.S. coup in Venezuela to come to Georgetown, Kiriakou is talking about the view of regime change from inside the CIA. That is a major news story. So regime change is everyday, even bureaucratized business at the CIA. Isn't that wild? And even people in Congress don't know about this. It's like that major secret is exposed because of the blackout about what was going on in the embassy. It was not reported. It was really interesting. Uh, And what was really interesting also was when we did talk to reporters, mainstream reporters, who wrote, there were some articles written, not as many as there should have been, but there were some articles written. It was so interesting to me how they believed their own false stories. They believed Maduro is a dictator. What? Did you know there was an election? I was at the election. I saw it. People were in line. They voted. There were 150 international election observers, official election. I was not an official election observer. I was there as a, a reporter with a media group. But there were uh, 150 plus international election observers. They agreed unanimously. It was a legitimate election that met the standards of democracy under international law, and that Maduro was elected legitimately. I tell these reporters, that, and they're like, he's a dictator. Whoa, whoa. How do you define dictator who gets 67% of the vote? You know, even though the U.S. boycotted, pressured Venezuelans to boycott the election, they still had almost 50% turnout. Uh, There were five different candidates, and one was a former governor, an anti-Chavista, and very pro-U.S. He came in second place with 20-something percent of the vote. Maduro got 67 percent. Maduro got actually, even though the election was boycotted, if you just look at registered voters, not just the ones who voted, Maduro got a higher percentage of registered voters than either Trump or Obama did in the United States. That's how popular he is. You know, so, and he's popular because he's providing for the people. We went to a neighborhood, a barrio in Venezuela, when I was, we were there earlier this year, 1.5 million people. Pre-Chavez, it was not even on the maps in Venezuela because they got no services. Now it's a thriving barrio, transportation, 
healthcare, dentist offices, food markets, and in fact, urban gardens that are amazing urban gardens. Now, Venezuela is, because of the, uh, the sanctions against the U.S., they're creating a uh, resistance economy that is building their own food supplies. 25% of their food now comes from urban agriculture, and they're trying to get to 50%. And so this barrio of 1.5 million people, not on the map, now has a, and that's why, and that's why they can't defeat Maduro in the elections. There's lots of criticism, so I'm not saying that, but that's why the U.S. tried to undermine the elections, because they knew they couldn't win. Right. The United States will continue to try to get rid of Maduro and the Venezuelan socialists for the crime of setting a good example, as they've done with Cuba. But they want to set a kind of example with you guys here as well in this case. That's true. We do feel like that. We feel like that normally a, a situation like this where you're in a building with the permission of the owner and have a key, you wouldn't be arrested at all. And the charge we're facing, interfering with protective functions, is probably something no one's ever been charged with before. Our lawyers like, well, I looked at that. Well, let's see if there's any case law on that, because there's probably never been a prosecution before. And so they want to set an example of us by putting us in jail for as many months as they can. It's a one-year, up to a one-year potential jail sentence, up to a $100,000 fine for each of us individually. Under most circumstances, that would be you spend the night in jail and that's it. In fact, we spent the night in jail when we were arrested. That was a, a kind of un- obnoxious thing by the police. We were arrested in the morning just after breakfast. The uh, federal magistrate meets at 1.30. They could have easily brought us to the federal magistrate for an arraignment that day and released us. Instead, they delayed and delayed, held us overnight in central booking just to punish us before they brought us to court because they know these charges are flimsy. But they're taking them seriously, so we're taking them seriously. So we really appreciate the, the collective that's come together, the Embassy Defense Committee that's coming to help us, and I hope people will go to defendembassyprotectors.org, sorry, defendembassyprotectors.org, and sign up so you can help to use this case to build the movement against U.S. violations of international law. And you can also donate to our defense because it is four of us against the United States with its unlimited resources. So defendembassyprotectors.org is a great place to check out. That was Kevin Zies, one of four activists charged with resisting the U.S. government's takeover of the Venezuelan embassy. Black Twitter has been buzzing about rapper Jay-Z's recently announced collaboration with the owners of professional football. Jay-Z cut a deal to produce entertainment for the NFL and to consult on league racial policies. The move is widely seen as a betrayal of sidelined player Colin Kaepernick. We spoke with James Hill Jr., a writer and doctoral candidate at Northwestern University, who two years ago wrote an article for Black Agenda Report about Kaepernick and his Take a Knee initiative. Hill has some thoughts on the Jay-Z deal. I think multiple things for the Jay-Z partnership to be named, we can just say ironically, right, Um, at the third anniversary to see Kaepernick and the movement, his Know Your Rights camp still, not just continuing, but also gaining support from other celebrities and activists. It's just a fascinating, for me, it's fascinating to see three years what has shifted in the dialogue and the discourse, what has not shifted, who's making partnerships with the NFL, who's still unemployed, and the way the narratives are being constructed around these facts. So I think that 
three years later, it's just fascinating to see for me to look back and see how everyone is making sense of what happened or seeking to make sense of what has not happened. We can also say that what has happened in light of the protests and the demonstrations and what has not happened. So it's been just fascinating to see the, the dialogue continue. Well, certainly there is a connection between Kaepernick still being unemployed and Jay-Z getting a contract. Yes, sir, for sure. I think that several journalists have written about this, scholars have chimed in, cultural critics have chimed in. One thing we can say, I think we can say this comfortably, it's not a coincidence that you know, at this third anniversary, Roger Goodell is bringing out one of the most popular Black celebrities on the planet, right, and shaking hands with this uh, popular Black celebrity, making sure all the cameras are there to see him take photos with this popular black celebrity and speak on his commitment to quote unquote social justice. It's interesting that in these meetings, they never um, outline specifically what they mean by this term social justice, about which communities they're you know reaching out to or, or they want to partner with and what that partnership looks like. But it was a lot of signifiers, signifying social justice, signifying disadvantaged and marginalized communities. You know, Jay-Z made the statement, you know, millions and millions of people will be affected by this decision. All that was said during this anniversary. And once again, ironically, can't mention of Colin Kaepernick's name. It wasn't until a, a journalist, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Charlemagne the God, interestingly enough, asked the question about Kaepernick's, you know, unemployment. And that's where the quotable from Jay-Z that, that has since been circulated was made that it's not about Colin getting a job. It's about affecting change for so many other people, allegedly. And Jay-Z is the one that's going to bring that change about on behalf of the NFL, or so we're told. Yes, Jay-Z seems to be saying that his taking of the contract and the money that goes with it is part of turning a page, putting an end to one phase, the Kaepernick taking a knee phase, and opening up another. Right. And for me, it's important to ask the question, where is that statement coming from? You know, for Jay-Z to unilaterally stand up and say that he and to say with confidence, right? I think that's what I'm fascinated with. You know, I'm also fascinated with parsing. Do I, you know, whether I agree, whether you whether we disagree. But for me, right along that, I'm also interested as a scholar of African-American studies, black studies and popular culture. I'm interested in the long history of black luminaries and black celebrities in particular taking upon themselves the authority to speak on behalf of everyone, to speak with that authority, to say that, you know, what I'm doing and the business decision I'm making will affect millions and millions of people and never have to show the receipts of the millions and millions or the thousands of thousands or the hundreds or hundreds or the dozens of dozens of uh, common folk, everyday working class black folk that they actually have, have received marching orders from. So I think it's fascinating to just see Jay-Z and the way that he's comfortably able to position himself as an authorizing voice on behalf of the black masses without necessarily crowdsourcing working class black folks and getting their opinion. But to see how that move was made and how that move was made with ease, I think points to broader historical realities for black folks in this country. I think this is remarkably similar to what happened in the late uh, 60s with the shutting mm -hmm. down of the movement by a class mm -hmm. of folks who were saying it's time to get out of the streets and into the suites and we're the ones going to take mm -hmm. you into the suites. 
No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a great point to bring out. And that's important to to highlight. I think it's always important to highlight that this is not new. And I think that's where our you know colleagues who are historians, our colleagues of African-American studies throughout and not just within, you know, academic disciplines, but our cultural critic colleagues, journalists are so vital in this conversation to remind us that what we're seeing is not new. History may not repeat, but it sure does rhyme, right? And so, and so you know, no pun intended with Jay-Z being, you know, one of the greatest rappers of all time. When we see him in that position, for those who don't know the history, they might be caught up to believe that this is the first time we've seen something like this or something like this is rare. But what you're pointing out is exactly right. And it's a necessary take and perspective on this matter that whenever you have a radical position taken or what could be called a radical demonstration enacted, those in power have always, and I don't believe this is, this is hyperbolic to make the statement, they have always found another African-American of similar stature, of similar rapport in the community or in terms of fame, they have always brought them up to say, well, look, we've got another African-American, either this is where they disagree or here's another take. And I think that is anti-black, right? Because what happens is that, and we've seen this politically with Trump, right? Trump doesn't go speak to black political theorists. Trump doesn't go and seek those who are grassroots organizers. Trump says, go give me a, a rapper. Go give me, you know, Jim Brown. Go give me, you know, the pastor who sat next to Joel Osteen and, you know, give me, give me, give me someone who has some cachet because the Negroes will listen to them. Right. And I think that when you when you see Jay-Z and what Jay-Z is doing and Jay-Z's position alongside Roger Goodell, as, as you point out, it's part of an age old story that when you have a radical voice or a radical movement, there will always be black celebrities. There will always be black officials who are willing to broker a deal that suits their interests. And they will and they will always garb that in the narrative and the discourse of racial uplift. And I think something else is at work here, too. The idea that somehow the amassing of money by any individual black is somehow progress, a great advance for the race. Jay-Z, over the course of his career, has just about said that many times. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, Jay-Z is famous for the line, you know, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man. And so he hasn't been shy about, you know, his, his business desires, his business acumen. And But once again, I think this isn't a Jay-Z issue. It's bigger than Jay-Z, should I say. It's not only a hip-hop issue, right? But once again, you know, scholars of Black study scholars will remind us that this discourse is as old as the you know, Black sojourn in these United States, you know, whether we're talking about the talented 10th, whether we're talking about the discourse of racial uplift, as long as we've been in this country and freedom has been an ideal that many have sought to in various ways to procure for themselves, we've always had this debate, how do we go about procuring freedom? What, you know, you know, what are the resources that by and through which we'll, we will obtain our liberation? And for some folks, it's through the accumulation of capital, right? By acquiring capital, by buying back the block, black capitalism will be the means by which we overthrow and dismantle the power set up against us. And then we've always had alternative perspective as well. So once again, I think it's important to situate this Jay-Z narrative within, within the broader historical narrative and say that, because I, I think we're doing a disservice to Jay-Z, if I'm honest, to say that, you know, to beat down Jay-Z. And, and I mean, because I think, once again, I think as, as this conversation is showing, 
I believe Jay-Z is not above critique. He should definitely be critiqued. But also I'm seeing folks who are so ready to critique Jay-Z, but yet there's not a willingness to critique some other individuals in our tradition who every February for Black History Month, we laud and we celebrate and we put on stamps. And they've shared very similar perspectives in regards to how Black freedom is procured in the United States. So it's important to critique Jay-Z, but I think as you've highlighted, it's also important to situate Jay-Z squarely within, within a larger discourse in Black history in, these, in this country. Well, what we see here is a direct and very dramatic contradiction. We have Colin Kaepernick, who puts on the line, is prepared to sacrifice and did sacrifice his earned millions versus Jay-Z, who already has millions and is prepared to nullify or turn a page on Colin Kaepernick's sacrifice while amassing even more money. Right. And we see this exactly. We see this narrative being shaped around what is proper. And as a student um, here at Northwestern, very influenced by the work of the late political theorist, uh, late great political theorist Richard Eiden, the work of Richard Eiden is very informative in this conversation because what I see in this narrative also regarding Kaepernick and this three-year anniversary and now the recent developments with Jay-Z and Rock Nation is this question about what is the proper way to demonstrate, right? If you, if you listen to what Jay-Z is saying, Jay-Z was speaking about not just how what he is doing will allegedly help the masses of uh, working class Black folk, but he's also talking about what's proper, right? When, when he makes the statement that, you know, we're past kneeling, He's talking about the proper way to conduct oneself, right? And I think that whether it's Dave Zirin's article that came out about Jay-Z being a capitalist or, or other critiques that have came in, tied to Jay-Z's statement is a statement about the proper role of activism, the proper way to act, to, to engage in activism. And it's important to note that Jay-Z is speaking from the position, and many have made this statement before me, not as a laborer, even though he's presenting himself both aesthetically, how he walks into a room, what he's wearing, you know, obviously as Jay-Z, you know, one of the greatest rappers of all time, his rags to riches narrative, he presents himself as a laborer, but he's not, right? He's actually a billionaire. He's actually literally a boss, right? He's management, right? And so he's managing, now managing through discourse, what is the proper way for the body to be comported, the proper way to engage in activism. And I think that going back to the original protest itself, the reason why Kaepernick's protest was such a problem in the country wasn't just because it was activism. And I think that's, this is the part of the conversation where I really want to hone in. There's something about what he did on Sunday morning in a stadium during the playing of the national anthem. And I think that if, if we aren't able to put all those together, and, and we're only three years into this, the books have yet to be written. We're not 10 years past or 15 years past. We're going to come back and we're going to begin to, as time progresses, put all these pieces together. But as you're looking at what he did, it wasn't the fact he took a knee to protest systemic injustices, but it's where he took a knee. And when we understand the role of the stadium within a democracy, particularly the role of the stadium within an empire, the role of imperial pageantry, the role that Sunday morning plays, the role that sports and, and entertainment plays within a democracy, and what he did to rupture that, what he did to unsettle that, right? 
there's no way he can get a job, right? So, so, so it's not enough to say he's not getting a job because he protested injustice. No, he reshifted, he resignified the terms of order within a democracy on Sunday morning within the eye of empire, which is the stadium, while the songs that sacralize the nation state are being played. And so even though many people have said, you know, this is not about the military or it's not really about empire, I don't think that that's an accurate statement. Anytime you take a knee during the playing of the national anthem, you're calling into question empire and everything attached to empire. And I think that's what Colin Kaepernick did. That's why he doesn't have a job. And that's why Roger Goodell is doing everything in his power to get any black person he can to smile next to him and do away with this issue because they want black faces. They want black arms. Art. They want black pop culture, but they don't want the radical critique that comes with black popular culture. Yes, there's no question that what Kaepernick initiated was a challenge to the white imperial social order and a challenge mounted by icons, that is, black icons, the NFL players themselves. I think that we see a counter-narrative here from another class, that class that can only act properly because they've got money. Having money is proper. Having money legitimizes your voice, not taking a knee. Definitely, most definitely. And I think that, for me, once again, what Jay-Z is doing, and I think that I want to echo this, I want to keep echoing this, placing Jay-Z in his historical context, right? Because we have to place him in a broader lineage of Black celebrities who make questionable allegiances with either CEOs or even the top CEO of this country, the president. I've been saying in the last week is that we can't talk about Jay-Z and Roger Goodell without talking about James Brown and Richard Nixon, without talking about Muhammad Ali and Ronald Reagan, without talking about Bill Clinton on the Arsenio Hall show. Because what we have to do, and in my opinion, if we're really talking about black popular culture, it's not just to lambast these figures who we may not like anyway. Jay-Z, for many folks, is an easy punching bag, punching target, because many folks just don't like rap, if we're, if we're keeping it honest. They don't like hip-hop. They never really liked hip-hop. So this is a hip-hop person doing a hip-hop thing, and he's a hyper-capitalist. So it's easy to talk about Jay-Z. But, but then to say that there's other folks who made similar moves to Jay-Z, to what Jay-Z is doing, and we do laud them, right? And so what does it mean to have a deeper discourse, not just about what Jay-Z is doing with Roger Goodell, but how this is part of a larger narrative that does include Arsenio Hall, that does include Muhammad Ali, that does include James Brown, that does include other largely male black celebrities who made alliances or at least were willing to make partnerships with visceral either white supremacists or politicians and businessmen who are known for their anti-black statements, right? And so what does it mean for this not to just be isolated as a sin or a grievance committed by Sean Carter? What does it mean for us to expand this and say this is part of a, once again, as we've done in this conversation, that this is part of a larger discourse about the role of black popular culture within a democracy and the way that black, particularly black male artists and black male celebrities have found themselves willing to make partnerships with very, should we say, with politicians and with celebrities who have been, let's just put it generous, less than hospitable to the black working class. Yes, I worked for James Brown at two of his radio stations, and I watched him do multiple, many sellouts of black movements. But he did that 
as a businessman. I think that if we look at these people as celebrities, their celebrity status does enhance their value to those they want to make deals with. But if we look at them just as celebrities and not as from the business class or often from the aspiring business class, then we don't see it in its proper political context. That's it. That's it. That there's always the business and the aspirational business model, right? The, the rags to riches story, right? And that's, you know, James Brown was known, you know, as, as I know you would be able to attest to, you know, for me, for many people, that's what inspired them. James's narrative inspired me. It's the same way, you know, Jay-Z's narrative inspired me. I'm a black man growing up in rough neighborhoods and rough circumstances, should I say. And Jay-Z's lyrics, Jay-Z's albums, I mean, I still play Jay-Z's albums because of what they mean to me and what they meant to me. And his poetry helped get me through some of the roughest periods of my life, right? And, and I, I think that that also is worth lifting up. You know, like you said, James Brown was willing to make several partnerships that were suspect to say the least, but say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud still is played at every cookout without, without an eyebrow raising. That's a great song with a great meaning that did a great work in the community. And I think that we can hold both. Like Muhammad Ali allowed Ronald Reagan to take a picture of him punching him or, you know, acting as if he was punching him on the chin. And yet Muhammad Ali still said, ain't no Viet Cong ever called me nigga. Like both of those things happen, right? And so, as though, so what does it mean? And I think that you're highlighting the business interests and the aspirational desires of many of these celebrity figures are important because I don't want what I've seen some colleagues and commentators do is that now when it comes to Jay-Z, it's a very flattened narrative. When it comes to Jay-Z, that doesn't highlight the work his art has done and the work his music has done, which I'm fine if, if his music doesn't do that for them, if his catalog does not do that for them. But I also see in the same breath that when it comes to other celebrities, there's a, well, yeah, they did this, but, but, but you know, we got we to consider this as well. And so what does it mean to hold the entire narrative intention? And I think that highlighting, you know, the business interest is one way to narrate and interpret that tension. That was writer and doctoral candidate James Hill Jr. speaking from Northwestern University. The constant drumbeat of mass shootings, many of them carried out by white supremacists, has prompted some people to call for giving enhanced powers to the FBI, but civil liberty activists disagree. Chip Gibbons is with the advocacy group Defending Human Rights and Dissent. Gibbons says the FBI has plenty of authority to investigate and cause the prosecution of violent white supremacists, but chooses not to do so. I fully acknowledge the danger of white supremacist violence, and I understand that people who are threatened by it are looking for solutions. But we've heard this argument, if you, if you watch CNN, you'll see former prosecutors, ex-FBI agents, and the usual assortment of guests coming on and saying the problem is the FBI doesn't have enough powers to investigate domestic terrorism. The FBI doesn't have enough powers. And that raises several questions. One is the basic empirical question, is the FBI really powerless here? And then the other question being, you know, how does the FBI use its powers and would it be a good idea to give them more? And starting with the empirical question, you frequently hear people say there's no law against domestic terrorism. There are 57 crimes that are designated by the federal penal code as federal crimes of terrorism. 51 of those, I believe, 
applies to domestic terrorism. There's also five hate crime statutes that would apply to acts of white supremacist violence. And there's a bunch of other federal laws that are not necessarily specifically targeting white supremacy, but like racketeering or or conspiracy that you could use in those cases. And I, I would point out that there is a highly specific domestic terrorism law called the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which makes it a crime to impede the operations of an animal enterprise if it results in a loss of their profits, and that this law has been used almost, I believe, exclusively to prosecute people who free mink from fur farms, and the FBI will put out these big press releases, like, oh, we have a big terrorism case we we just solved today. And you're like, oh, what is it? And you'll look at them, and it's mink that were freed from a fur farm. But on top of that, the FBI has the loosest restrictions on it at any point since the church committee. After people sort of stopped tolerating the abuses of the Hoover era, there was an attempt to sort of rein in the FBI, which everyone sort of understood to be using its quote-unquote domestic intelligence powers to basically engage in political policing. There was some talk of having Congress put limitations on the FBI, defining who they could investigate, when they could investigate, what types of evidence was needed, etc. But Congress never acts, and the Attorney General instead creates the guidelines in 76, which then regulate the FBI. And Ronald Reagan's Attorney General loosens those guidelines. George W. Bush's Attorney Generals Ashcroft and Mukasey also loosen them, with Mukasey really radically rewriting them to create an entirely new type of investigation called assessments. And assessments are contrasted in the guidelines with what's called predicated investigations. And what that means is that an assessment doesn't require a factual predicate to believe the individual has committed a crime or is going to commit a crime or is a threat to national security. So for the first time since the church committee in 2008, the FBI is then allowed to investigate people who they have no suspicion or any evidence to believe is going to commit a crime. So they have vast, vast investigatory and surveillance powers. And if you look at how the FBI uses these powers, they investigate it as a domestic terrorism investigation. School of the Americas Watch, a pacifist group that is opposed to our government funding death squads and dictators in Latin America, they did a 10-year domestic terrorism investigation into School of the Americas Watch, even though their own documents said they had peaceful intents because a more militant group could take over, you know, not a group anyone knew about, but a hypothetical group. And with Occupy Wall Street, they do a domestic terrorism investigation into Occupy Wall Street. And it's, it's the same thing. They say this group is nonviolent, but a, a lone offender could get involved here. And you, you look at how they use their domestic terrorism powers, and they have ex- when it comes to going after left-wing dissent, they have extraordinary elastic definitions of what is or isn't a proper domestic terrorism investigation. In 2010, the Inspector General for the Department of Justice released a report looking at how they've used their domestic terrorism investigations during the Bush years to spy on dissent. And they looked at a case where they had investigated the Catholic workers because somebody threw red paint at a recruitment station, a center, and then sent out an email saying, 
This is for the people of Iraq who suffered under Saddam and now suffer under the U.S. military occupation. And the inspector general decided that under the FBI's own guidelines, that was an appropriate domestic terrorism investigation because there was a use of force or violence throwing red paint for political goals. So the idea that the FBI is powerless is just empirically false. It's not even like a matter of debate. It is empirically false to say the FBI does not have the power to engage in these types of investigations. Well, you know, you know, this reminds me very much of the talk back in the 1960s when people were saying that the United States military was fighting the Vietnam War with one hand tied behind its back while the U.S. was bombing the country into the Stone Age and in the process of killing two or three million Vietnamese, throwing everything at Vietnam but atomic weapons. Yeah, and bombing civilian infrastructure like the dikes that were important for flooding under Nixon. Yeah, it, it's really, they're absurd arguments. But but the second part of this is, you know, how does the FBI use its powers? And that's where it gets really disturbing. There was an incident where a, a white supremacist group called the Traditionalist Workers Party was having a rally in Sacramento, California in 2016. By any means necessary, a civil rights racial justice group organized a counter-protester, white supremacists, stab the counter-protesters. So the FBI opens a domestic terrorism investigation, not into the white supremacist, but into by any means necessary. And in those same documents that were released about this by a Freedom Information Act, it shows, first of all, the FBI didn't know what group had organized the rally. They thought the Ku Klux Klan had, not the, the Traditionalist Workers Party. But they actually considered investigating by any means necessary for violating the rights or conspiracy against rights, which is a, a Reconstruction era statute of the Ku Klux Klan. And the FBI's description of the Ku Klux Klan is as a group that some people perceive to have members that are have a white supremacist agenda, which is like shocking that that is how the FBI is describing the Ku Klux Klan, ignoring the thought fact that, you know, it wasn't even the Klan who had organized it, but the FBI said this Ku Klux Klan, this is the verbatim quote, consists of members that some perceived to be supportive of a white supremacist agenda. So if the FBI gets more domestic terrorism powers, who do we think they're going to use them against? I mean, you already have Donald Trump and Ted Cruz talking about wanting to label anti-fascist organizers as terrorists. Yes, the FBI has always been a political police, but more than that, it's a political police that always focuses on the left. We remember, for example, when the FBI used its informants or so-called informants in white supremacist groups back in the 1960s, and those informants were committing violent racial crimes, even as they were on the FBI payroll. Yeah, the FBI informant who testified before the church committee wearing a white mask over his face because he didn't want his identity on, on TV, which is, if you find the image of him testifying, it's pretty creepy. He told the FBI in advance that the KKK would attack the Freedom Riders 
and that the Alabama police had told them they had 15 minutes to do so. So the FBI knows that the Ku Klux Klan is going to commit violence against the Freedom Riders because their informant, Gary Thomas Rowe, has told them, and the police will let them do it, and they take no action. And Gary Thomas Rowe, the FBI informant, is in the car when several Klan members shoot and kill a civil rights worker. He testifies against them at the trial and goes into the witness protection program, and he claims before the church committee that he merely pretended to fire his gun. I can't imagine any other situation in which you're in a car of several other individuals, they pull someone over, get out of the car, shoot them to death, and you say, oh, I was just pretending to fire my gun. The rest of them were murdering this person. You get away with it. And then later in, in 1978, he admitted to killing someone else. So, you know, that was the FBI informant, the Cointelpro informant against the KKK. The FBI sent him to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan and, and their instructions to him to deal with the threat of white supremacist violence was to sleep with as many wives as KKK leaders as possible. Meanwhile, he's participating in violence and informing the FBI of actual violence. and They're taking no action whatsoever. Now, we have always seen a portion of the black community that has called for the FBI to get more powers. But with Russiagate and with Trump, an even more hysterical kind of urgency seems to be afoot. I mean, this is sort of the problem that I, I mentioned at the beginning, that if you watch CNN or any of these other news stations, I mean, the guests you see on are ex-prosecutors, ex-CIA directors, ex-FBI agents. It's just person after person who is from law enforcement or the security state, and they obviously have a particular point of view. There's no one from any sort of other background usually that's allowed on TV so I, I think that we have a culture where we sort of treat these people, some of which have perjured themselves, as somehow neutral commentators. And you have Jake Tapper asking someone, oh, your colleagues say they don't have enough power. Is that true? And surprise, surprise, the ex-FBI agent says, oh, absolutely. I need more powers. It would be interesting if you had on someone who had been spied on by the FBI as a commentator on these issues. That might be more illuminating. Well, actually, I was referring to mainstream black politicians like Maxine Waters, the black congresswoman from Los Angeles, who not so long ago was accusing the CIA of being involved in creating the crack epidemic. But now with Russiagate, the CIA is our friend and the FBI is our friend. Yeah, and she was very outspoken on the Iraq war and the U.S. coup against Haiti that removed Aristide. So you do, you see you see a lot of people who have in the past been very critical of the FBI, the CIA, U.S. foreign policy, now suddenly, because of the Russiagate stuff, acting like these groups are our friends. And it's very, I don't know if people have amnesia or, or what's going on, but it's it's very short-sighted politics. The FBI does not need to be further emboldened or legitimized. 
Yes, and certainly since 9-11 and even before, as you pointed out, the FBI has amassed many more powers. But we remember 1969 when the FBI had nominally less powers than it does now, and it declared the Black Panther Party was the number one danger to national security in the United States. And before that year was out, the Chicago and Illinois chapters of the Panther Party had been decapitated with the assassinations of Mark Clark and Fred Hampton, and scores of other Panthers were dead or in prison. No, yeah, the FBI was ruthless in destroying the Black Panther Party, and that was part of their counterintelligence program known as Pro, which was specifically started in 1956 because the FBI was afraid that an increasingly liberal Supreme Court would make it harder to bring criminal charges against communists. So it was a program designed specifically to target political activity that was legal and protected by the First Amendment under its own admission and to disrupt and neutralize it. And we also need to point out that the FBI prosecutes those that it wants to prosecute. It's not about their powers. And as the biggest example, possibly historically, J. Edgar Hoover for many decades denied even the existence of the mafia. Yeah, absolutely. The problem is not a lack of powers. It's very much the FBI's own internal policy. I don't think there's any real question about that. And so the discussion ought to be about what the internal policies of the FBI are, rather than giving that FBI more powers. Yeah, and if anything, the FBI's power should be restricted. I mean, there should be restrictions on the FBI investigating First Amendment protected activity when there's not specific and articulable facts that indicate a violation of the federal penal code is likely or has occurred. And perhaps if the FBI had less power to chase around people under the guise of fighting terrorism who were entirely nonviolent, entirely engaged only in political speech, they might have to, you know, actually use their domestic terrorism powers to go after actual domestic terrorists. Who knows? Who knows what would happen if you did that? But that seems like a great place to start. Well, from past practice, I think we do know something about what the FBI does unless they're kept on very strict legal and political leeches. Yes. And a lot of this is political will. I mean, like, you know, the Church Committee was not the first time anyone was surprised to learn the FBI was engaged in activities like this. People knew back in the 40s and 50s the FBI was engaged in political spying, and the FBI spied on those groups and gave information about them to HUAC, spying on its critics and having the House Un-American Activities Committee smear them. So the difference then with the church committee was you had mass movements for black liberation, anti-imperialist movements who were in the streets and who created the political situation in which reform was possible. What we need today, if we're going to rein in the FBI, is that same kind of political will to do so. And yet, returning to Russiagate, there are indications from the polls that the FBI and the CIA and the other spook organizations are more popular today among Democrats than Republicans. And most of the resistance to FBI and CIA abuses had in the past come from Democrats. 
Yeah, it's a complete inversion. It's it's very disturbing. It's very short-sighted. People aren't remembering their history. And it's not even like, you don't have to go back to like the Hoover era. I mean, just going back to like Occupy Wall Street or Black Lives Matter being spied on like in the last three or four years. So it's so extremely short-sighted. It's, it's remarkable. Yes, the FBI created a category of black identity extremists that was so vaguely worded that it could have included the NAACP. And yet there were very few actual hard cases that could be linked by any interpretation to that black identity extremist categorization. I mean, the whole black identity extremist intelligence threat is about criminalizing black dissent. The underlying argument is that if black individuals are angry at police racism and police violence, and and why shouldn't they be, then they might go out and commit violence. What that's saying is that criticism of police brutality, organizing for basic human rights, makes you more likely to commit violence, and that therefore that initial speech should be treated as suspect. And it parallels very closely what James Comey, the ex-FBI director and current resistance hero, was was doing when he talked about the quote-unquote Ferguson effect, which was that because there were protests against police brutality, there was an uptick in crime, there was no such uptick in crime, that theory's been entirely debunked, but it's this idea that if African Americans, you know, demand basic human rights, then violence and crime will naturally flow from that, that the FBI has touted that is basically about criminalizing black dissent. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. <laughs>